Good morning, Sam. I think it's good morning to you, right? Yeah. Yes, we are here in the evening in the Netherlands. I'm so happy to talk to you, Sam. It, it's been such a pleasure to work with you at Earth Charter International, where you are a faculty member and um, are teaching a, a course on, on, you know, a holistic approach on, on education, on um, using creativity, using art, using um, storytelling, culture, all those different elements that are part of the humanities. Um, and um, well, I had, I had the honor to be one of your students, <laughs> as well as working with you as uh, at Earth Charter International as well. And as this month is the month of the humanities, um, I immediately thought of you. Um, and, um, and I'm so grateful that you that we're here to, to have this conversation. Um, but let me start by giving you the floor to tell a little bit more about yourself. Uh, thank you, Irma. It's so wonderful being a part of this and seeing you again and having a chance to have this, this uh, conversation. And so I, I hope throughout it all, we can uh, connect in a lot of different ways with ideas and stories and, and our own aspirations. It's a strange time we're living in. Yes. Uh, my background is actually um, somewhat in the humanities. My, my doctorate is in an area called social foundations of education. Um, it's not a very widely known area, but it, it uses the fields, the disciplines of philosophy, history of ideas, anthropology, and sociology. We study the context of education. And so I, I, uh, I bring those disciplines to bear and my questions and my approach to, uh, to educating and to um, trying to live my philosophy as a teacher, as an educator. And, uh, and I actually think of teaching as applied philosophy. Yes. <laughs> I test my ideas and I can also uh, uh, think through my ideas. So I learn from my teaching and, um, and then I hope my thinking and my reflecting also informs my teaching as well. So it's been, um, I've taken that approach my whole career and I, I felt enriched by it and by the questions that, um, that come up and uh, the use of the humanities. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you. My, uh, I've been a, a teacher in a school. <laughs> I've been um, an elementary teacher here. We use that term in the US and a high school teacher. Um, my areas of study were in philosophy and English and college and psychology um, and uh, administration in uh, my master's program. And then um, not only social foundations in my doctorate but curriculum studies as well in organizational theory. So uh, I've used all of those disciplines. I've taught in a liberal arts college and uh, uh, there I was asked to teach courses in philosophy and religion and speak to English departments <laughs> and so forth. So I've always 
really enjoyed my association with different departments of humanities. And when I was at a state university, I developed a, uh, a master's program in holistic and integrative uh, learning and uh, brought together 14 different departments from various colleges across the university and uh, collaborated and co-taught with people and uh, with professors in communication studies and English, uh, in geology and art. And, and uh, so we, we really brought together the disciplines to integrate them uh, and to look at life and the world and the world views that we hold from a very holistic perspective. And so as I created the program, Holistic Education for Teachers, um, I found that those, those experiences in the humanities were the ones that informed us most. Uh, moving into the arts and moving into what it means to be who we are. And uh, I would use art classes in, in terms of uh, who are we? <laughs> yes. And uh, because we teach who we are. And so as we enter that exploration and that inquiry, self-inquiry, we find that we bring in others very naturally into that experience. And so, although it was a small program, we had uh, many teachers of the gear come out of that. And uh, it, was, uh, it was so successful that the university recognized us and had us present to other departments and so forth. And it was in that program that I um, wrote a small grant in peace education uh, to uh, study and explore the programs at the University for Peace, and I discovered the Earth Charter. So that's sort of my circuitous journey, and uh, so I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fantastic. That's that's quite a journey as well. It's a story on its own. Uh, thank you. And and um, there are few few words that, or well, a lot of your words, but some of them really triggered me. Um, and one is that of um, collaboration and, and integration. Why do you feel that is so important if we're talking about um, education and specifically, you know, the holistic education approach? Yes, um, personally, I've been so drawn to collaborative and co-teaching. Uh, I think mostly because I just learned so much from other people. And um, uh, so when we collaborate, we bring together ideas that, just, that seem to, uh, to kind of explode outward, you know, uh, because um, uh, you don't necessarily know what the other person is going to do, even though you've planned and you've talked about it. And so uh, these different perspectives from other disciplines just seem to, to be there and they, they enrich my own thinking and the way I see the world. And um, mm -hmm. uh, I've, I wrote actually um, an article uh, about two years ago on the nature of collaboration and how collaboration I see also as a form of mentorship um, and not just co-teaching, but as a process of getting to know uh, different people from different points of view and having a conversation together. So I think that mm -hmm. um, coming together and communicating who we are and our ideas, the way we see the world, uh, 
we just become expanded. And uh, that's what I love about the collaborative process. Mm-hmm. I know it's also, you are also inspired, influenced by um, native um, communities, by um, indigenous thinking. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that? Yes, thank you. I, I actually have planned to talk a little bit about that uh, uh, this this evening, this morning. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. uh, my my ancestry is with the people of the Aniyumiya, uh, which the popularized word is Cherokee. My grandfather was uh, Aniyumiya and also uh, African American and uh, and European American also. So it was, um, I've tried to reclaim that heritage. I was not brought up culturally in that uh, world, but uh, as an adult, I've tried to reclaim the ideas and the understandings because they frankly enriched my life in a very important way. And um, I um, I was participating in a Native American lodge ceremony uh, many years ago. And I was sitting there and the the heat in the lodge was uh, increasing and you could feel the sweat uh, falling down and and you you start to enter a state of of just openness. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, the native songs were being sung. And I just felt a real sense of connection to my ancestry and and the people that um, are still flowing in my veins yeah. and flowing in, in, in the blood. And um, I realized uh, at that moment that we all carry forward our ancestry, that we aren't separated from it. And we carry forward not only the ancestry of the past, but we carry forward also our aspirations and those in the future generations who aren't yet here. And we carry with us uh, the experiences of one another and different peoples and different cultures that inform who we are. And even though we, we may not be aware of them or know them personally, we carry this forward in kind of the bubble of who we are as a people and as a person. So I started really thinking about how that actually redefines the sense of identity, not mm-hmm. from just an ancestral point of view, but from a human point of view. And uh, so that began a search and an understanding of this, this kind of thinking and being. So, so, so is that, did that also influence your, your um, approach on education? Actually, it did to some degree. Um, uh, it, it expanded it. I, I don't know if it influenced it in a very specific way, uh, but it started to a uh, 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 holistic education, which I, um, uh, I actually came to holistic education through the sciences and, uh, and trying to understand the philosophical implications of the science of the 20th century as, as it was changing as, and as anomalies kept pointed to a more holistic vision of the world we're part of. And I started to realize, well, what does that mean philosophically? Uh, because the, 
Um, Mircea Eliada, a great comparative religionist and theologian, uh, said that we um, that that we are that education is the myth giver of a society, mm-hmm. <laughs> and as as we start to to understand that scientific metaphors are actually myths that are that we're trying to place and understand in our experience, then uh, then then what is this myth that that we are. Uh, moving toward. So I approach the science very, uh, from a humanities point of view, if you will, from the sense of mythology and the sense of um, philosophy. And then I started to realize this isn't new. This this interconnection, this view of holistic uh, understandings of who we are, uh, go back to primitive times, of course, and certainly in the indigenous cultures. I actually have a, um, uh, there's a, there's a term uh, used by the Lakota Indians called, um, uh, that says Matakwiasen, and all native peoples that I'm aware of have this understanding of Matakwiasen. It means all our relations. Yes. And uh, it is fundamental to their way of seeing the world and their way of being. I have a, a native, a First Nations person who talks about this, uh, his, his name is uh, Richard Wagamisi, oh. and uh, he's deceased now. I'll show the book. It's a little book called Embers, and it's a beautiful set of uh, meditations of his experience. And um, he's, he says here uh, that he's been considering the phrase, all my relations for some time. It's hugely important. It's our saving grace in the end. It points to the truth that we are all related, that we are all connected, that we all belong to each other. The most important word is all, not just those who look like me or sing like me or dance like me, speak like me or pray like me or behave like me, all my relations. That means every person just as it means every rock mineral, blade of grass, and creature. We live because everything else does. If we were to choose collectively to live that teaching, the energy of our change of consciousness would heal each of us and heal the planet. And uh, that to me says everything. <laughs> it, uh, it just puts it all in perspective. And uh, it enlarges and increases the notion of who we are as humans because we tend to think and narrow that question to our humanity rather than see us also connected to, to, uh, to nature, to the creatures, to that that also is who we are. The plants are also who we are. The rivers that flow, the clouds that that hold t- millions of tons of water above our heads mm-hmm. and move it through through the atmosphere. That's also part of who we are. And I think this this understanding needs to be re- reclaimed by all of us mm-hmm. uh, because it it spans and enlarges the notion of humanity and humanities itself. Yes, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I just finished uh, reading his um, Medicine Walk book. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I just I'm I'm very fond of of his oh. Rob and like it's um, poetic and at the same time very raw kind yeah. of writing. It's it's beautiful. So thank you so much for sharing that part with us. Um, He's from uh, Colombia, where you spent some time, I believe. Yes, correctly. Yeah. So, so what you're if we lead back to the humanities and and understanding who we are, for you that is very much connected in um, to the relationship that we have not only to each other but to the system of this planet, to to animals, for instance, and especially for you know, the animal caretakers that, that are watching this um, webinar, um, what can you share um, with us on that topic? Oh, well, uh, one of the things that I, that I love about the work you are doing and your organizations, you, you have a term as take care to give care. Yes. <laughs> I absolutely love that. Take care to give care. And I think as as we um, as we have, I don't know. Um, I have pets that I, I've always had pets, but and they become part of the family. Uh, I think experientially, if I could just uh, share this, that just as we love our pets and they become part of our family and they and, and they enrich our lives in so such a special way that we begin to understand that nature, nature of, um, of care and responsibility. And uh, because they aren't just creatures that are extraneous to our lives, they're part of our lives. We take joy in them, we laugh when we see them do something cute. We, uh, mm -hmm. uh, we hold them uh, and uh, sometimes just to uh, even if they don't want to be held, can I can I just put my arm around you for a moment <laughs> to yeah. feel close? And she lits my my uh, my cheek, and I'm I'm ready for the day. You know, it's uh it's one of those beautiful relationships. And so as we look at relationship and care, we start to understand that there's not an obligation. There's mm -hmm. but there's a, a response, a freedom to be responsible. I want to, to feed her, to care for, for my little Lola and, and yeah. my, uh, uh, my raggedy cat. And so uh, that sense of care, that sense of responsibility are very much the themes of the Earth Charter. Uh, they're very much, much the themes of what I think a good education is all about. Um, there's, um, there's a Dutch, since you are in Holland, or the <laughs> I should say, uh, there's a Dutch philosopher that I, I admire very much, Kert Bista. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Is that close enough? I'm not sure. How do you spell it? B-I-E-S-T-A. Bista, yeah, I guess, yeah. Hert, uh, Heck, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, he is a just a wonderful, marvelous thinker, and um, uh, some of the things that he feels very strongly about is uh, there is a term in Dutch 
um, that he introduced to me once, and I don't know it, but it means to be grown up. Uh, you may know that term in Dutch. But he talks about an. Mm. What is it? Is it volwassen? I believe so. Mm. It's a, and he speaks of a grown-up education. <laughs> that yeah. education is is to. Um, uh, it's it's in a grown-up way. How are we grown up in and with the world, and uh, and that's something we move toward in terms of teaching. It's focusing on ways in which um, not in which human beings exist, which is fundamentally a humanities question: uh, who are we? But it isn't just who are we; it's how are we in the world, and that's the question that Hert Bista proposes. How are we in the world? Uh, who is identity? And he wants to move, not dismiss identity, but, but to emphasize instead what he calls subjectivity. And that's what he means by being grown up. <laughs> yes. And being grown up for him is grounded in freedom, not in obligation. Mm -hmm. And so the freedom to take responsibility for the world we inhabit and for the world that we are part of is fundamental to his view of education. And I think that that speaks very importantly to the times in which we live and to a planetary perspective of, of the world. Um, because frankly, we don't have time <laughs> Uh, to, to just move along with an education that, that is all about subject matter. Yeah. Uh, education has to have a purpose that transcends the subject matter. It's the subject matter for what purpose? And I believe my conviction at this point in time in history is that our, the purpose of education is to help sustain and protect the planet that we're a part of and is a part of us. Mm -hmm. and, um, that's a grown up education for me. Uh, the freedom, we have the freedom to, to, to be agents in the world. Mm -hmm. That sense of agency is tremendously important in, um, uh, in the psychology of learning. Uh, Learning is an is a, an act of agency. We do something with information. It mm -hmm. isn't passively receiving it. Yeah. And, and so the other aspect in, of education and of our humanity is that sense of cooperation, not, not necessarily just collaboration, but cooperation. Even our original brain cells uh, needed to cooperate in order for us to evolve into uh, a thinking and aware um, uh, person, individuals or, or uh, beings, species, because originally those two cells were at each other's at odds. They were combative. They would eat each other. <laughs> And so we could never have evolved as a species until these cells began to cooperate. And our early tribal beginnings replicated that sense of cooperation as small tribes. 
And the more we were opposed or in conflict, the, the more we separated ourselves out, then the less effective we were at solving the problems of survival or solving the problems of how do we live together. And um, so it goes to the basic formation of our humanity. It's actually a field now called socio-neurobiology <laughs> that blends these together. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, these are influencing the way we think of ourselves and the way we see ourselves. So educationally, um, uh, these, these questions of, of our humanity, um, we can't be human without being part of nature. We are. And going back to the indigenous view, our purpose, our purpose is to be protectors of nature. That was, that's what, uh, that's how the indigenous people see us. For them, it's not a hierarchy of humans and then everything else. It's all creatures are, are held within a circle and they are side by side. It's a horizontal way of thinking. It's not an elevated way of thinking. And each creature in each species, in their view, has a particular or set of purposes. This is why you're here. And, and from their point of view, humans are here in this existence to protect our planet Earth, mm -hmm. to protect our home, to serve and, and uh, to protect life and be helpers of, that, of those lives. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about take care to give care, <laughs> that's, that's consistent with our purpose as humanities, if, as human beings uh, collectively. And so if our education can be a planetary education, then it brings us together in a very different way. It transcends our, our different cultural and linguistic and religious identities. It doesn't do away with those identities at all. It just transcends them. It brings them together. So we're all here to protect and help preserve life on this planet. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why we're here. And how can we do that in the best way possible in harmony and balance and in so doing thrive as, as uh, helping everything thrive in equal ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I get excited. I'm sorry if I- No, no, it's very interesting. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, so, so, you know, if we're talking about the humanities and the way that, you know, uh, it explains who we are, um, in, in all our differences and, and commonalities, actually. How does, uh, how does the humanities help us imagine uh, a more just, sustainable, and peaceful future? Especially if we're talking about the relationship with, that we have as humans with nature and animals. I think the humanities raise questions by their very nature. Uh, the humanities are kind of grouped. I like to think of all of our disciplines actually as being uh, grouped with central and emergent questions. And I think the humanities are grouped. What does it mean to be human? And uh, we, could we could explore that question through our, the arts, 
we can explore that question in literature, we can explore that question in language and cultures, we can explore that question in, uh, in our history and all of these aspects and even our sciences. Uh, we can explore the humanities question of that in biology and psychology and, and geology. What does it mean to be human? And what do we do with that understanding as we move forward and in, into the world? Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I think um, humanities has been kind of um, uh, uh, concentrating on the notion of reason. And I think reason uh, is a way to clarify the questions that are there and the information we receive, how do we use reason? Because we are um, unusually equipped to use reason to analyze our place in the world and the questions we ask about it. But reason also um, has limitations. Uh, yes. While it can clarify, it rarely provides an answer. Yes. <laughs> okay. And so uh, it's a wonderful way to construct and deconstruct our understandings and our clarity that we have. But our actual decision making uh, involves other aspects of our humanity. It involves our intuition. It involves our creative uh, sensibilities. And that's also part of the humanities. <laughs> so yes. it isn't just contained in the reason. I think that's been an offshoot of the humanities that may have been overly emphasized at the detriment of these other aspects. That's my own feeling anyway. Mm -hmm. so, so it limits us actually if we, if we only use reason. Yes, if, if we only use reason. Yes. Because, uh, the decisions that we make now are, are decisions of value. Uh, we make decisions even once, even if they seem like reasonably, how could you choose anything else? We yes. do, <laughs> but yes, we do because we haven't looked into our values. So what is it that we value? And uh, if we value materialism, our decisions are gonna go there. If, yes. we, if we value uh, self-interest entirely, then that's, those are, that will shape our decisions. So what shapes our values? And that's the question that's, education is about um, not only clarifying and bringing reason and information to bear, what do we do with that, uh, with that ability and with that understanding? Yes. So that's where sometimes, for instance, I've, I, I've taught uh, courses in culture and society and culture and schooling and so forth. Sometimes I've noticed that teaching culture has been almost like a cultural, cultural voyeurism is what I call it. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And you can, especially with little kids, oh, that's weird. That's uh, <laughs> accomplishing <laughs> what it is that we want. So, so to teach culture means to, that understanding that we really learn about ourselves. I, I believe strongly in reflexive learning in the sense that whatever we're learning out there comes right back to us reflexively. I'm really learning about myself. 
I'm learning that I do have a language <laughs> and that language shapes and, and, um, and almost controls the, the limitations of my thinking because I have to think within those constructs. Yeah. Oh, I'm learning that I have an ethnicity. I'm learning that I have, that, that I'm a, uh, that I have all of these attributes that, uh, that I'm seeing in someone else, I'm realizing that, whoa, what about, how does that affect me? What kind of thinking and worldview and customs and geography, how do, how do I affect the world? Mm -hmm. and how, I, I might be just as strange to them as they are to me. What about that? And, uh, and so uh, that deeper understanding and relating uh, what we learn to ourselves and, our, and how we act in the world and on the world and with the world, that is a much more crucial question uh, regarding culture to me. So, so, so and I, I'm triggered um, because of, of how does um, animal culture uh, you know, how is that related? Is that affecting you or your teachings? Because are you seeing, um, are you uh, realizing or um, acknowledging animal culture? Thank you. Uh, I was I was hoping you would ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We're in the in sync. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, I, I tell a story. I used to have a Labrador retriever. He was an amazing dog, and. <laughs> I don't know if you know that breed of dog, but they are absolutely joyous. <laughs> they, yes, they never grow up. Laughing and smiling <laughs> all the time. And I'm out on a hike with her. And I said, Cherokee, you just, I said, you're such a teacher. <laughs> you, keep, you keep telling me to lighten up, to just have, have some fun and play and, and chase a ball and chase a stick and look over here. She just never never met an enemy, never met someone who, even if they were dour and, and had a, a, uh, a harshness about them, not to her, she would just move right on up. So yes, she was a teacher for me. And uh, my dog Lola now is also a teacher in a different way. But I, I know that's, that's a very, I think, accessible way of seeing how animals uh, affect us. But I think more importantly for me is that as we move into, um, it's interesting, as we move into these in discussions of indigenous culture, um, we find that the Chinese had a particular model where they used nature as a model for being, for living. Uh, uh, and uh, the native peoples took that even farther. It wasn't just a model. We watch nature to see how we are to live. And we live in harmony. We live to nurture. We live to, yes, take care of ourselves, but not to take more than what we need. We, we satisfy our needs, but we don't go further. We leave something for others. We leave, we prepare for the generations to come. Uh, we adapt, we change. And I actually um, uh, 
as I move more into complexity theory and chaos theory from the sciences, um, as I look at, at the way nature works, I almost use uh, a biomimicry model uh, for educational theory and educational philosophy. So nature is, is an amazing teacher because if we are all related, wherever we, relationship is an abstraction for us until we look at nature. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, relationship is kind of, it's just a nice word. Yes, all my relations, yes, this. But when we look at nature, when we look at animals, when we look at relationships among animals and how they harmonize with their environment, how they take from the environment, add to it, and are parts of it. Uh, we see how, how the world operates in this beautiful, beautiful harmony. And uh, it's instructive for us. Uh, and we are so far from that model. Mm -hmm. And the destructive aspects that, have, that we are facing right now uh, show that distance model and way of living balance and harmony. Balance is not a weight of scales. Balance is actually in nature, always intention. You're moving this way and that way. It's always moving. It isn't trying to get something static. And so balance infers harmony and harmonizing. It is an event that's always occurring. And so that's why decisions can't be just it's this decision and always, and that's it. It's always moving and adapting and changing and transforming itself. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So talking about um, change and, uh, um, you know, especially the change that, you know, we definitely need at this time. Um, so how does the Earth Charter as a tool for change work for you? Well, I, um, I, of course, I was waiting on that question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love the Earth Charter, and I don't know if, if the viewers of, of this will be that familiar with the Earth Charter. Uh, but um, let me start by this. I, uh, a theorist named Jerome Harsty once said that there are two central questions that all educational curricula should address. And one of those questions is what kind of person do I aspire to be? And the other is what kind of world do I want to live in? And uh, I think those are really strong questions and how we address them uh, is really important. And for me, the Earth Charter is a beautiful uh, way of looking at those questions, all right? The Earth Charter, uh, first of all, uh, reframes, I think, some of the assumptions we have about who we are. We are, we are not just humans. We are humans within a context, a context of other communities of life. And so, uh, we start to answer that question, what kind of person do I want to be or I aspire to be? Well, 
who am I as a person? I'm, I'm an individual, I'm a species, but I, I exist within a context of the communities of life. Yeah. And, and so that sense of, of placement, of situatedness uh, is central to who we are. And the, the earth charter begins to frame the metaphors for that. We are a human family. Uh, we, we're not just a separate individual, but we are, uh, what, what does a family do? A family cooperates, a family uh, tries to support, the family protects, the family relates, the family comes together in difficult times, the family lifts up. I'm talking about good families, <laughs> but certainly the notion of family is, is that we are somehow connected at a very deep level. We're not separated out and individualized to the extent that we can't connect and relate to one another. And the Earth Charter puts that forward very strongly. And not only are we a human family, but we exist within a community of life and we share a common destiny. And I think those three aspects, the human family, the community of life and a common destiny are hugely important in the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about education mm -hmm. and we think about our place in the world. The other thing that, and I think the second principle um, well, the major, the major foundation of the ethic of the Earth Charter is built around respect and care for the community of life. And if you start there, uh, you, you start with, uh, with care for the community of life, with understanding, compassion, and love. And so that gets to our purpose. And we can't do that without respect. We can't do that without seeing the diversity of life and the diversity of cultures and creatures and, and species. And, um, and so uh, those two are foundational to create democratic societies that are just participatory, sustainable and peaceful. Uh, if we have no respect and if we aren't operating out of care, then how can we be just and sustainable and peaceful? And so um, uh, how can we begin to, to hold on and secure and protect the bounty and beauty of this beautiful planet uh, without appreciating the diversity of all things and that we are part of that and a gift uh, to the world in our own special and unique way. And to me, education, that's, that is the cornerstone of what education is about. We need a planetary education right now. Mm -hmm. uh, all of our subject matter, whether and should be directed toward uh, uh, our being a planetary sustainability. And I use planetary instead of global because I think I only do that because for me, uh, the word global could be the same thing, but it connotes more of a, the human aspect, mm -hmm. uh, social aspect. Planetary, to, for my purposes, <laughs> increases that. It, it expands that to include our humanity and our social systems and our, the societies and cultures we're part of, but it also includes the non-human uh, 
uh, world that we're a part of as well. Mm -hmm. So, so when the Earth Charter talks about Earth, our home, it also connects not only us as a human species, but but all the other um, organisms, and but even you know soil and rock and and rain, right? Yes, absolutely, and uh, and those we could not live without those. <laughs> uh, they are part of our future and um, part of our present and part of our past. So uh, time, time is collapsed into, uh, into those realities as well. Yes, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Um, so what, can you, can you, which, well, you already talked about respect and care for the community of life. Um, and that's a sort of overarching um, all the other principles that are in the Earth Charter. So actually, I have, I have two questions I realized is one, how come that we need as a human species that we need something like the Earth Charter? Because what you're saying sounds so logical. How come that we sort of you know, distanced ourselves from this, this organic logic, I would say almost? Um, and um, which one other, which of the other principles are, are the ones that you really focus on, live by, um, you know, uh, uh, use in your education strategy? Um, it's a wonderful question. I, I think why, why we needed to move into that question first. There's a, there's a phrase in the Earth Charter that says we need to focus on being more rather than having more. And I think one of the reasons we've moved out of balance, so far out of balance, is we've been focusing our values on having more. And when we see ourselves as, as driven to have more and have more and have more, then one, we start to isolate ourselves as a species. And then the other, we start to, uh, we start to use up and the resources as if they were objects. And uh, um, if we start to view the world as subjects rather than objects, we might hesitate just a bit. <laughs> uh, how am I using this? I'm not even sure using now uh, even that word fits. Mm -hmm. How am I relating to this? Yes. Uh, I need to ask its permission in order to use it. <laughs> yes. There's a beautiful story in, um, in, in native uh, lore. Uh, and one of the stories is that um, uh, the animals got together and said, these humans are starting to, uh, to exploit us, aren't they? They're starting to kill just to kill. They're starting to eat just to eat. They're not, they're out of balance. So how can we teach them a lesson? And so, uh, so the bear said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to make a, a bow and arrow and I'm going to use it against them. <laughs> and so the bear tries to make a large bow and, but its claws got in the way and he couldn't shoot naturally. So that's not going to work. The deer said, well, I'm going to do something else. So on and on they went around and the, the animals said, well, I don't know that we can use their methods to uh, teach them a lesson. What we will do, 
we will create diseases and we will uh, infect them with diseases that might bring them some humility as we move out of the pandemic, uh, that might be a lesson to hear. Mm-hmm. Well, the plants got together and they said, well, that might be a little harsh. We still believe in humanity. We still believe that they may be able to come to their senses and not overdo. And so we'll provide, we will allow ourselves to be the medicines that will help them when they become ill. And uh, so the story goes that for every illness, there would be a plant that can be used and uh, to serve and bring us back to an understanding of ourselves and who we're meant to be mm-hmm. and how we're meant to live in balance. So, uh, so in, in that regard, I think this notion of having more pulls us out of balance. Uh, and the values of being more are those values that are, to me, um, uh, in the Earth Charter. Uh, so the Earth Charter talks more about being more. It's shifting our attention, if you will. Yes. And in the neurosciences, wherever we place our attention, then that's where the, the neural connections form. And so if we move our attention more and more to who are we, to how do we live in this world, then that attention becomes awareness and that awareness becomes intention. And then the attention, the awareness and the intention move us perhaps in a different direction, or at least they offer different options for us to inhabit the world. And the, For me, uh, the Earth Charter, the process of taking six years to develop and including all cultures and and peoples and religions and and races and political ideologies to have a common vision, uh, to me, uh, that's astounding. Even though there's uh, the languaging can sometimes feel uh, distant or feel a little abstract or feel like it's an impositional. It wasn't written in, for that purpose. It was writ- written to be a dialogue and a conversation about the vision up in front of us. And, uh, and so my question is, how can I bring these to life? And yeah. so how can I, uh, how can I bring uh, a culture of tolerance, nonviolence, and peace uh, to life. And uh, how can I encourage and support mutual understanding and cooperation among peoples and nations? Uh, how can I recognize that peace is the wholeness created by right relationships with oneself, other persons, other cultures, other life, earth, and the larger whole of which we are a part? Mm-hmm. That happens maybe my favorite one there uh, but so that question um, the questions are important and the question of how do I bring this into my living uh, uh, if I could philosophize a bit uh, <laughs> Jacob Needleman uh, a philosopher I, I really love uh, 
uh, once said that real philosophy is being willing to live within the question. It's not coming up with an answer, it's being willing to live within the question. So when I ask how can I bring that to life in my living and in the world and in my teaching, I need to live within that question. The question doesn't just have a quick answer and goes away. I need to let that question work me <laughs> yes. and disturb me. And uh, I need to, to be aware of how I'm resisting it and what's causing that resistance. And I need to understand how other people view that question. I need to understand what the circumstances of life are and how that question might disturb that circumstance of life. So I have to live that question. And uh, so, um, so when, we, when we look at one, treat all living beings with respect and consideration, uh, in the political climate in the United States, that's not easy to do. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so uh, because we're so divided and polarized in many ways, so how do I uh, uh, show respect and consideration for ideas and, and perspectives that are so abhorrent to me personally? Yeah. How do I create a communication? So that question is, always in front of me right now, just given the circumstances of, of uh, the times and the country that I live in and the political climate that, um, that we're often facing. Um, I, I don't wanna to go too far. Let me let you jump in and direct me a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's really beautiful. I, I really like the way you're saying, you know, um, living within the question. And I, I for sure um, recognize that in, in your teachings and in, in you being an educator, you know, and, and really being part of that process. So not, um, not sort of, um, you know, I'm the teacher, I'm in front of the class, but really engage and, and learn from, from, you know, whoever is around. Um, you know, I remember we were, we were in the Earth Charter International classroom and there was um, uh, a bird outside and, and we were like, oh, like, uh, not, I, actually it was a hummingbird inside, inside the classroom. And we were all, you know, captivating by this animal and, and you were sort of using that moment to, to learn from the animal, but also teach us at the same time. Do you remember that? Remember that? Yes, I do. It's, uh, I've always felt that um, uh, the questions, questions are not just inhabited by our brain and by our intellect. Uh, to me, learning and questions is, is an embodied um, experience. I'm very much a mm -hmm. proponent of embodied learning. That's why I tried to find physical metaphors. So the hummingbird was a beautiful physical metaphor for something that we could also consider intellectually. I don't want to bypass the intellect, but I feel that when we experience something that there's, there's body and physicality to the intellectual process and that we are first of all physical beings that contain the intellect and the emotions and the aspects of our lives that are spiritual in nature as well, that, uh, that lead to our larger well-being of, 
of of living this life. So mm -hmm. I, the sense of uh, experience, I think that you're suggesting is something I, I love and living within the question, when we develop the holistic education program, uh, I, I refuse to call them courses and yes. <laughs> uh, I call them odysseys. And uh, so I wanted each, each course, each odyssey to be built around new questions. What does it mean to be whole? What does it mean to be in relationship? And how does this come, up, come through in our teaching? Uh, what aspects of our humanity are we drawing from just to learn? If we're not drawing from our physical nature, from our emotions, from, uh, from our relationships as a social group, if we're not drawing from nature itself and the environment that we're a part of, as well as the intellect, then all of that's going to affect learning. So let's explore these. And I'm just as much a participant in exploring that question as students. And so it allows me to learn from students and their insights and perspectives, not just my own. Yes, exactly. I remember, uh, maybe to close off, um, I remember that you told us a story. Um, it might be uh, like to sort of wrap up the, the programs uh, about uh, um, an eagle. You told us a beautiful story about an eagle. Do you, do you remember that one? I think it was about that, that you need both, yes. you know, good and, and challenge or bad. Um, yes, it's a, uh, well, it's a little different. It was actually a prophecy. Mm -hmm. Yes. The, and the prophecy uh, is, is actually held throughout uh, uh, South America and uh, with the indigenous groups there. And uh, it's interesting that there are similar prophecies in the North, uh, but this particular prophecy is of the eagle and the condor. Exactly, yes, that's what I, the one I mean. <laughs> in their prophecy, every 500 years, one um, is, uh, is dominant. And the eagle represents our mental and intellectual capacities, our technological prowess as humans. And the condor represents for them the spirit, the spiritual and the, uh, the value oriented, the, uh, the sensitivity uh, of life. And that every 500 years, these sort of move in different uh, uh, spheres of dominance. And so, the last uh, 500 years uh, was around the time of Columbus. And in their prophecy, this should be the time of a new change, but their prophecy says, no, this is a time where the eagle and the condor are to fly together. Yes. Where we need now the intellect and the technology and the mental prowess but we also need the spiritual and the care and the love and the sensitivity to what we're a part of. And I love that because that seems to be a very interesting way to view our time. And in the North, in Canada and the, the First Nations peoples, they talk about a prophecy of two-eyed seeing, <laughs> which is very similar. We see with one eye, then we see with the other, and each eye represents 
either the more creative and spiritual, the other more intellectual and so forth. And now is the time for two-eyed seeing. And uh, so the same message is being brought to us now with indigenous groups. And I think it's a time we need to pay attention because if we don't pay attention to that message, um, uh, it will be at the peril of certain, certainly humanity, but many other species as well. And I would, I would just say also that one of the things that indigenous peoples are telling us right now is that uh, very importantly, if we are to move out of this time of desperation, we need to pay particular attention to the feminine voice. And uh, that this is not a time to hear the male voice. It's even if you might be male, we need to be speaking in a feminine voice or the female message. Uh, we need to be much more receptive than assertive. We need to be accepting rather than rejecting. We need to be nurturing rather than uh, gathering and taking all of these things that represent uh, the female role and symbolically in our world um, we need to pay particular attention so I'll stop with that that's just beautiful um, a way to to end this uh, this this talk that we have uh, Sam I really appreciate you took the time and I for sure see you know within you in the way that you are um, using science um, uh, at the same exactly the same level as um, you know indigenous knowledge um, uh, arts culture language um, that that you know you are both eagle and condor so thank you so much, Sam, for our talk. Um, and, and I really hope to, in the future, to give you a huge hug and, um, and, and continue our conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much, Irma. It's so wonderful seeing you.